Beruchim Habayim, everybody. Um, welcome to Rationalism versus Mysticism, episode 15. Already 15 we got to. It's pretty unbelievable. Uh, this is probably, you know, we're getting into some of my favorite topics, and I think really some of the most interesting uh, regarding prophetic Kabbalah now. And it's it's uh, it sounds like something very, you know, uh, aspirational, and something that is almost a little bit ambitious, and of course it is, but I think you'll find the same amount of interest as I'm finding in it, and I think it really is worth our while to understand what does this entail, and what did these ancients, or not even so ancient people, uh, delve into when they were, you know, trying to ascend these levels. Wow, Baruch Habada ID, I don't know if he's connected to the audio yet, but uh, always a pleasure to have him. Um, but even if you're not prophetic, yes, you can still predict the future. I mean, you're doing that every minute. You mean scientifically? Logically, you know, in other words, there's, in other words, there are people who predicted a futurist, that, yeah, that uh, Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, so let's, you know, let's see, let's see what exactly the prophetic nature of the Kabbalah really means. Um, because there are, you know, elements of it that are, you know, about futuristic predictions and things like that. But I think the majority of it is not so much focused on that. But on, I'll give you a quote from Alan Watts that, that resonates with me. Um, and we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, what we make of that. But, but definitely we'll, we'll keep our ears open to, to what exactly this means, a prophetic Kabbalah. So to begin, ah, Baruch Haba. So, nah, no worries. So to begin, we'll start off like I always like to do with some quotes from the East, because like I always say, it opens us to it opens our hearts and it moves us away from thinking only with our minds. We always want to be careful not to get too into our brains and also drop down a little bit into our hearts and uh, see where this takes us. So allow my words to try to penetrate your heart as much as you can. And treat this class if you if you really if you if you prefer it like a meditation almost. So this is what Lao Tzu says: countless words count less than the silent balance between yin and yang. I really love that. The silent balance between yin and yang. It's something that is so, you know, present in every moment, in everything, everywhere. And it's the silent balance. It's always there. It's always you know, and, and it's humility. It kind of maintains reality, this balance of yin and yang. And these countless words, including the ones that I'm spewing right now, count less than the silent balance of yin and yang. Always important to keep that in mind when we're approaching the mystical study. Next quote, rushing into action, you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. He remains as calm at the end as at the beginning. He has nothing, thus has nothing to lose. When he desire, What he desires is non-desire. What he learns is to unlearn. He simply reminds people of who they have always been. He cares about nothing but the Tao. Thus, he can care for all things, right? So, so what do you guys make of that? That there's something in the doing, 
there's also non-doing and there's just being. So like uh, Michael Pollan, he received an email from one of his colleagues. And at the end of this whole long email about, you know, psychedelic research and science and the involvement of all that, the end of the, the email had a, a beautiful thing. It's, it was almost like a blessing to Michael Pollan, which said, I hope whatever you're doing, you're doing less and being more. Because the being is really what's the most important thing. Whatever you're doing, you should keep that in mind and be present with what you're doing. Because otherwise, life is just going to pass you by. And the person who does things without a sense of, I absolutely insist on a certain outcome. Without that sense, things are a lot more pleasant and a lot more beautiful. And it's almost like an art form, whatever you're doing. So Dr. Nasser, I'm sure that, you know, as a surgeon, maybe you get into a flow state. You know, the Chinsent um, Mihai, one of these famous uh, psychologists, I think, he has a famous book called Flow, where he talks about surgeons that are, you know, when they get into the, the surgery that they're doing, they kind of enter a trance-like state almost. And they're so involved in what they're doing that it that they lose themselves in the experience. I think in a way, obviously you have the goal of, helping the patient, fixing the guy's knee or whatever you're doing. But at the end of the day, the, the process itself could be enjoyable. Um, and this, I love this idea of unlearning. So much of, and, and Doc, if you want to speak to that, you can. Otherwise, I'll, I'll talk about unlearning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, like today, I had an interesting experience. I was do operating, I was doing a knee replacement with my partner. We had just completed one, so this was the second one. It's just my personality. I get very enthused. I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. It's going to be the most amazing knee replacement. We're going to, like, fly through this knee replacement. It's going to be, like, blood. <laughs> There's going to be bones. Things are going to be flying all over the place, but we're going to, like, stay focused. We're going to get this done so well, so efficiently. It's going to be amazing. And uh, that's, that's what it was. It was, like, exhilarating. I don't know if I lose myself. I mean, it, it's like, I think it's similar to like a bowler, you know, just, just, you know, bowling or, or, uh, you know, maybe an air, uh, a pilot, you know, landing a plane or, or like anyone doing something that, you know, requires a lot of skill training and practice, you know, like a sports or something. Yeah. You, you get, you're not really right. You're not your like usual self. Like, uh, yeah. you're not, you're not feeling emotions. You're not like, thinking about, you know, I don't know what your mom said to you or something <laughs> like that. I mean, your mind's not wandering, you know, it's a completely mm -hmm. different state of mind. Yes. But that, I feel like it's still I myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I lost myself. I mean, that's, yeah, maybe, that's definitely me. Maybe it's not a complete mystical experience. Of course, you know, I would hope not. Uh, you know, I, ho I would hope, I mean, unless you're really some kind of unbelievable being, but, uh, but I think that's a damn amazing uh, level to be at, you know, that you're a seasoned surgeon and you're a seasoned veteran who is able to be, you kind of like one with your work and exhilarated and enjoying what you're doing. And I think that's really the key here. Um, and then, you know, so, so to me, that's very inspiring. And I, I think we could all find little areas in our lives to do that. Um, and this idea of unlearning, you know, we always talk about how, knowing too much or thinking too much is really almost a detriment here for us because and it's so strange because in so many areas in society in our lives where it's cultivated in us to be brainy to be smart take tests think about things and that's one of the the tragedies of society today is that it's cultivated too much and we don't stress enough the unlearning nature of things and the, the way to, to 
to have no preconceived notions and just sit with an experience without kind of forcing your prior history onto it. And that's, as we've mentioned, that's what psychedelic drugs help a person do. Um, and that's what the mystical experience is. It's a completely new experience. Um, when are we going to like all trip together? Like, I, you know, I we have that on the schedule yet. <laughs> that's that. That'll be right. Let's see. I I, uh, I start residency in June. We'll do it uh, maybe in May. <laughs> Just don't tell anybody. If you're listening to this recording, keep it a secret, please. Um, okay. <laughs> that's great. Um, okay. So next quote: My teachings are easy to understand and easy to put into practice. Right, it reminds me of what the Torah says. The Torah is not something that's so difficult. You got to up to heaven to find it. Who's going to cross the sea and go give us this stuff? No, the Torah is supposed to be something that's so really relevant to you and practical and practicable in the sense that it's supposed to be something that is enhancing your life and goes hand in hand with it rather than seeming like a burden. Um, so here he says his teachings are easy to understand and easy to put into practice, yet your intellect will never grasp them. And if you try to practice them, you'll fail. Right? So intellect and trying are our two enemies here. If you're using your intellect already, you're trying to one-up everything. You are trying, your ego is trying to one-up the universe with your intellect. And the trying, same thing, trying to one-up the rest of the universe. And you're not accepting the fact that in that moment, you're continuous with that universe. My teachings are older than the world. How can you grasp their meaning? Right? So in a, in a sense, he's trying to overwhelm you with what he's saying, I think with the express purpose of saying, don't try to grasp it. Don't try to fathom it. Enough with that. You're, if, you're, if, like, if you're barking up that tree, you're not going to get where you want to get to. So it's like David Campbell's favorite, famous quote. He says, I climbed the ladder of ambition only when, to see that when I got to the top, I set the ladder against the wrong wall. Right? So you know, we shouldn't set our ladders only against this wall of knowledge, 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 but maybe our ladder should be set against the spirituality wall. Um, if you want to know me, look inside your heart. I love that. There's something so inward about so many of these experiences and so many of these uh, quotes and, and any mystical person that you'll talk about will have this idea of the inward nature of what's going on, Baruch Abba, Avi, and Erwin. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always going to be something to be said about you already have what you're looking for. And it's the funniest thing these mystics will say. It's, it's crazy. It's that when you're entering this mystical realm, it feels like you're remembering something that you forgot. And it's, it's, it's almost like, I can't believe I allowed myself to forget this. All right. And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, end the first part of the class with this quote from Alan Watts about prophecy. And, uh, you know, uh, cut me some slack here if you, if you disagree, but let's see, let's see what you think. The future is unknown. Prophecy contaminates it with the past, 
which is why liberated people do not bother with fortune telling or astrology and why the happy traveler wanders and does not let himself be the slave of maps, guidebooks and schedules using them, but not being used by them. Right. So he has a negative view on prophecy that's solely aiming at telling the future. Because what that does is it's just imposing the past onto the future and you're not really fully present now. If you really were trusting, if you really were letting go into God, you wouldn't need to try to predict the future. And ironically enough, maybe if you fully let go, you'll become so wise that you'll have a mystical experience that did tell you the future. So that's why it's impossible to really talk about it in a logical way. And I, I know I'm contradicting myself 10 times to Sunday. But the point is that, the, you know, there's the famous uh, story that there, there was one of these yokels in, uh, in England, you know, and hundreds of years ago. And he was, asking, he was asked by a traveler, you know, sir, how do I get to this, this place? And he says, well, sir, uh, I do know where it is. But if I were you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there from here. You know, and, and, and like the deeper meaning of that is, you know, you have the goal set. Okay, I understand what you're aiming for. But the, the way that you're trying to go about it will not work. And, and that is this logical obsession. And that is this trying. And it's so difficult to get across. But it's something that you just kind of practice. It's like surfing. I think if you're trying to be too rigid on the water, you're going to fall. But if you kind of allow your body to relax a little bit, the muscles relax and you, you kind of become more dynamic with the, with the fluidity of the waves. I'm not really a master surfer. I only had took like lessons in Costa Rica once, but all, nonetheless, it felt that way that if you, if you loosen up a little bit, you'll be a much better surfer. And I think that applies to everything in life. Like, you know, some people are very rigid and as they're being dragged along life, they're going that they're like they're hitting their they're behind against all the rocks and they're just like ow 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 ow. But there's other people who are much more wiggly and they're able to kind of take things more in stride. And I know that's not easy to say when we go through suffering, but still, there's ways of being less rigid about Good our expectations. Point. Good point. Yeah, thank you, ID. Um, in fact, I was reading something the other day about. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. I was reading something the other day about. The other day about Adam Newman, you know, the WeWork you know, we founder. Yes. So he took up surfing about seven years ago. And in, it, in his second act now in life, he talks how surfing what is his model on life, like you said. In other words, how, how, you know, how you navigate the wave, how you catch it, how you, how you prepare for it. All that helped him day to day. So I guess there's something. I love it. You ever read Katie Milkman? I'm reading a book now by Katie Milkman. It's uh, it's Angela Duckworth's friend. I know you know Angela Duckworth. Angela Duckworth is great. Yes, exactly. So her friend, she writes the foreword to this. I, I was going to get that book. How is it? It's called How to Change. My brother Sam lent it to me. I, I read chapter one. Unbelievable. And she compares a lot of this, you know, this stuff to tennis, and and it, wow. all these metaphors I think are very fitting: surfing, tennis, yeah. baseball. They all because I read I read a book how tennis um, changed your thing. I think I have it here. Continue. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. 
So now we'll, we'll go into the, the Kabbalah portion of, of the class. Um, so let's see. Let's see what we have here. Okay. So obviously, as, we, as you all know, Judaism itself is based on what? It's based on a fundamentally a revelation. Revelation to we talk about Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov, we talk about Moshe Rabbeinu. There's something super important and fundamental. It's almost like the keystone, the cornerstone of everything that we know of is revelation. And there's a Talmudic dictum that states that with the death of Malachi, the prophet, that prophecy completely ceased and was no longer available. After Malachi died, that's it. No more prophecy. And you, we could talk about all the, the political reasons that the Hachamim probably said this. They were trying to avoid sectarianism and they were trying to avoid false prophecy and they have famously this quote hacham adif min navi that a wise person is preferable to a navi to a prophet how could you say that how could you say a wise person a hacham is adif min navi i think what they're saying is that the ability to sit with the halakha as it is and work within that system is preferable to somebody who needs to recreate it all the time. That's the way I take it. But I think they had a lot of, you know, many, many reasons for, for saying that. However, with that said, a very prominent tradition persisted that asserted that there were various types of revelation and prophecy that did continue within Am Yisrael and within the world. And this allowed for a lot of Jewish mystics to seek this these different revelatory experiences. And that it continued for, for hundreds of years where despite this Talmudic idea, there were people who continued to try to seek real prophecy. And hopefully next week we'll talk about uh, Rabbi Abraham Abu Lafia, who was a person that really, uh, you know, probably got furthest into this idea. And he's one of the most intriguing writers about prophetic Kabbalah. But we'll get to him next week, hopefully. Uh, or the week after. Let's see. I'm not sure. I'll have to check that out for you. Let me know if you find also. Um, so there were obviously some traditions that said prophecy is a unilateral act of God. It's something Hashem chooses of his own will. And you really have almost no say in it. That's, that's, some, that's one tradition um, or some traditions. However, there were other traditions that still maintain that a person, if they master certain techniques they could attain prophecy. Most famously, who says this? Harambam. Harambam says a person could, and, and there's debate as to whether or not God has to really do something at the end of the day to really give you that, that prophecy or not. But it seems that Harambam really thinks that the key to all of this is to perfect yourself. And he treats it like there's this radio frequency is a radio frequency going on? Oh, Baruch Abba, you here for us? Amazing. Pull up a chair, football. Sit anywhere you like. Um, so, so there's this, this really profound idea that we always mention consciousness or whatever this, this radio frequency is, is out there. And if we're able to perfect our antenna enough, we could tap into that. And we could, we, that's something that's up to you. So if you figure that out, it happens me'elav, this pro prophetic level, right? 
and I'm sure people who have done, uh, you know, psychedelics will tell you, you know, this wasn't an act of outside God per se, and maybe it was, and but it felt like at that moment of merging that it was both an act of me and an act of God, that it wasn't just me, but it was almost when I when it happened, it felt that everything leading up to that was meant to be and was an act of God, but it was also my choice, and somehow they both co- coexist. Um, um, let me just uh, double check you on this Rambam. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what what you're <laughs> like, which which book you're taking from, but I agree with you for sure that Rambam would say that a prophet has to be appropriate receptacle for for yeah. Hashem's, uh, you know, uh, whatever he's communicating. Meaning, you know, he doesn't have idiots, you know, be prophets, or he doesn't have, you know, people who uh, who don't haven't attained a certain amount of uh, spirituality or whatever you want to call it, be, yes. be prophets. But I don't think necessarily just because you've attained that that level, whatever that level is, that mm-hmm. you're guaranteed to have an uh, an experience with Hashem. Yes, uh, I mean, is that what Rambam indicates to you? Some somewhere. So- it's in the Morene Buchim, he, where he talks about this. And I, I've learned it a, a couple of times. And it gets to a point where it gets a little vague at a certain point. I don't remember exactly. But I think that it gets a little bit vague regarding what exactly happens. So let's say you perfected yourself and you got to the level where you could get prophecy. It might not be automatic because I think the example he gives is Baruch ben Neriah, the scribe of Yirmiyahu, who doesn't get prophecy. And it's almost that Baruch ben laments this, this idea that he doesn't get prophecy. But I think there are scholars who read into the text and will tell you that really Hanambam believed it was all up to the person and, you know, God let it happen on its own. And there, were even, there are even scholars who say that Hanambam might have believed that he achieved prophecy himself based on the Moreh. Now, don't call me on that because I'm definitely not an expert and I would have to see it inside. And we would maybe learn Rabbi Ricky. I would love to. But but there's definitely something there. And I would love to, to open up that text one day and, and try to tackle that. Well, if you're a biblical scholar, I mean, you'd have to agree that prophecy seems to be directed from Hashem yeah. to whoever he chooses, when he chooses and for whatever specific purpose that that Hashem chooses it doesn't seem to be the other way around where, I mean, obviously you could reach out to Hashem, yeah. um, but usually that's only like after he already made contact. Uh, so so in the, in, there in is the examples the, that, that we've seen. Yeah, there is an example <laughs> of, of Elisha, and this is really like, they, they, they love to harp on this one, but Elisha, he said, bring them in again. Bring the, uh, the, the, the person who plays the harp or, or whatever. And, and let him give me an ecstatic experience to open me to, to prophecy. So there does seem to also be this bottom-up approach, but I agree there is definitely a top-down thing going on. And I'm sure there, there could be people claiming reading both things into the, the text of the, of the Tanakh. Well, obviously, if you look at the Kohen Gadol, you know, you have, I mean, you know, or he could go at any time to the Kodesh Kodeshim, if I'm not mistaken, and have a, a communication um, but like the channel was already open in that situation. Yeah, I think only Yom Kippur, but yeah, you're right. I, I, it's Sadiq Iyun. I think that's that's for sure. But Mike, that was Mike. only Kippur. Sorry, correct. Right. Yes. Michael. One second. Yes, Sadiq. 
Could you just, I, I missed that. Could you just describe, uh, what do you call it? Not translate that. Lord, are you Oh, we didn't get to that yet. We'll get to that in a oh, couple okay. seconds. I thought you, because you shot down. I you oh, sorry. No, no, no. We're up to this right here. Okay, fine. Yeah. So, yes, Victor. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've heard many stories and, and uh, I've had people very close to me tell me things like this and uncanny things. And I'm not, you know, I used to be one to be very skeptical and very cynical, but I'm sure healthy skepticism is good. But the truth is that I think a lot of these things are very personal and it's very hard for other people to relate to it sometimes. Um, but I'm open to it. I really am. You know, if I, if I would have some, such a dream and, and it happened in a very similar way, I would be amazed. And I, you know, I wouldn't count that out. I think who knows? Yeah. So who that's, that's a big shayla and harambam. It's a good point. Right. But the dream is the lower, the lower form yeah. of, uh, of prophecy. It's not really considered the same yes. thing. Avimelech, And we have examples as famously. Okay, great. Um, now, ecstatic and prophetic Kabbalah is the name of this school. So we've, we've spoken about mystical intimacy. We've spoken about, spoken about normal mysticism, which is just within halacha. But now we have what's called ecstatic and prophetic Kabbalah. And I always say ecstatic literally means ecstasis, to stand outside of all of it. Um, so it specializes in this ability to how do I perfect myself and my antenna to tap into this realm? So normal mysticism, which is just within halacha, claims we cannot achieve post-biblical prophecy or any sensory experience of God. And however, the traditions do exist, like we said, regarding God having a physical form, which is, I know it sounds crazy, but the Torah itself will describe it that way. And it's a longer conversation about Anambam and what's going on with the Torah, that God can manifest his presence physically uh, in such a way as to be apprehended by the human sensor, sensoria, seeing and hearing, uh, you know, and there's different ways of saying, did Hashem create the voice that spoke to us? Is Hashem, part of Hashem dwelling in the cloud of glory? What exactly is happening? It seems very difficult to, to really apprehend, but there are traditions that exist talking about God can really be physically sensed and experienced. And I think part of this is, once you dissolve the boundaries of the ego, you're able to feel that continuity between your body and the rest of the environment. And now it feels like God is part of your body and your, your body's part of God and, and vice versa. And it all kind of jumbles together. So to me, it's not so crazy to say that God also is continuous with the physical. I wouldn't limit God to the physical, but I would say the physical is part of what God is. And please don't stone me for that. Um, so now we'll get to ID's question. What is this? versus So is the famous statement that God tells Moshe. Moshe is finished in Parashat Kitisa. He just saved the people from being destroyed in Heta Egel. Unbelievable. He got to a level that nobody else ever got to. And he's told by God. He says, God, I want to see your glory. God, show me now your glory. It's one of the most epic episodes in the entire Torah. I believe it's Exodus 24, if I'm not mistaken. So, means, sorry, Moshe, man cannot see me and live. But, he says, 
you'll see my back, but you won't see my face. <coughs> but then we have another pasuk in the Torah that says, Moshe spoke to God, Panim el Panim, ish el God spoke to Moshe face to face, the way a person would speak to his friend. It was so intimate. So this is transcendence and this is eminence. And there's this, this kind of tension in the Torah between these two ways of experiencing God and approaching the godly experience. So now the question becomes, okay, you said, men cannot see me and live. What does that imply about death? What does that imply about the moment of death? What does that imply about ego death? It's all up to kind of the experiencer to determine that about maybe you do see God in a sense. Maybe that doesn't mean literally seeing with your eyes, vision, light. Who knows? But it's something to be delved into. So he saw God's back, and according to that other story, but yeah, he he saw God face to face. You're right. It's a, it's a good. It's a it's like a stira. It's like a it's like a contradiction. But I think <coughs> it's not literally that he saw God's face because God doesn't have a face to see. That's you know, in, in that literal way that you way that you and I have a face. But maybe there are there are people who get so enlightened that they literally see God's face in everyone's face. And they look at people's faces and they say, this is the, the manifestation of God in this realm that's talking to me right now in the form of grandma, in the form of my patient, in the form of my friend. That's a beautiful way of looking at it. Um, and there's there's ways and obviously, you know, try not to worship people because, you know, we know where that leads. But at the end of the day, there's, I don't think there's really anything wrong with saying God is manifesting as everything that we know and see. Um, so now we talked about, you know, God speaking to prophets. Is that with a physical voice? Is that with vibrations in the air? Is he creating a voice? Um, you know, what's going on there? Uh, and it's funny, I thought of this, this idea, like we have make America great again. I'm not, not, it's not a political statement by me, but make God imminent again. You know, this is almost like a, a slogan that we might have. You know, some of us have, I know myself, when I was so my Maimonidean, I, I placed God a little too far away. And, you know, not to blame Maimonides for that, but, you know, it's kind of my thing. And God became too transcendent and he wasn't imminent enough and he wasn't relatable enough for me as a limited human. So make God imminent again. I think that's a nice slogan. Um, various prophets claim to have seen God, right? And they say, we've seen God Almighty sitting on his throne. Yechezkel says this. Yeshaya says this, right? Various rabbinic traditions exist, and they say at certain times, there's a physical manifestation of God's presence that's available to all people, like probably the Ananeh HaKavod, the clouds of, of glory. The Hachamim say about the Pasuk, we read in Shirat Hayam, and the Hachamim famously say, what does Ze always mean? It means something you have to be able to point to in the sky. So they say, okay, how could this be? So what, did the, what does the Midrash say? It says as follows, they pointed with their finger at what they saw. A maidservant, a shifha, a simple person, Yani, saw at the Red Sea, at the Yamsuf, what Isaiah and Ezekiel, Yeshayani, Hezkel saw, which is God on his throne. 
Right. That's incredible. I mean, I'm not sure Hanambam would be so happy with, with this, right? Because Hanambam wants to, to, to place profits on such a high level. But here we see that it's possible to have such a, 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 an ecstatic experience collectively as a nation that even the, the commoner and the layman is capable of having an experience of God that parallels that of Yeshayah and Yehazkel. So you can imagine to the throne mystic, to the person who's seeking prophetic Kabbalah, that this would be very inspiring and very reassuring to them. So the goal of throne mysticism, which is throne mysticism just means trying to get to that, and we'll get to it, trying to get to that level where we see God on his throne, their central goal is to achieve a semblance of the vision of Yeshayan Yehezkel. So now it's interesting because so much of what we talk about is God as being so imminent. And I just said, make God imminent again, you know. But the truth is, that's, you know, that's, we always like to have multiple perspectives at different times in our lives. That's a healthy thing. You don't always want to take the same perspective towards God. The Torah itself is full of many different images of Akalosh Baruch. We have Hashem Ishmael Hama, Hashem is Ke'erahom, and he, he cares about the, the person without a shirt on, all these different things. So there are times where I, as a person, need God to be imminent because I'm struggling or whatever is going on in my life. But at the end of the day, there's other times where what I'm really seeking is to listen to a Carl Sagan video and stare up at the stars and go with Victor to California and, and see unbelievable, uh, you know, the Milky Way and, and, and you know, hiking on the, uh, on the, um, the, in the Mojave Desert on the dunes. There are other times where I don't want to feel that I am, you know, continuous. I want to be incomplete and utter all. I want to feel small in relationship to God. There are so many times where we want that. And that's an incredible feeling. How small am I? You know, and, and to me, that's, that's what this throne mysticism is seeking. It's trying to give you an experience of total and complete awe of God. Yirat Hashem. And, uh, you know, we, we, the, the Midrash also says, We know on the Shalosh Regalim, it says that in Yushalayim, the all of your males shall be seen in Jerusalem. Yera'e is the passive. But the Midrash reads it because it's the same letters. That all the, the people will see God on the Shalosh Regalim. Whatever that means in some mystical sense. Masechet Hagiga daf bet amud aleph. So literally the first page of it. So it says, as he comes to see with two eyes, right? Talking about the person coming to see with two eyes. So he comes to be seen with two eyes. Sorry. So I think what that means is um, the same way a person is coming to see God. So too God is seen. And, and who knows what, what exactly that means, but I, it, it seems like when you put in that effort, you, you, you kind of take that step forward towards God. God is going to take that step forward towards you and give you some sort of vision that you're looking for. And maybe that's talking about the Shalosh Shagalim. Who knows? Um, so now we'll go, go a little bit deeper into throne mysticism, unless there's any questions or comments before we continue. All right. Please, yeah. Albert. Very quickly, of course. You can be face-to-face with someone and but not see them. Mm. And it's interesting how, correct me if this is not the language mm. in the biblical text, but later he says, show me your glory. Mm. 
So, you know, think of a blind person. They could, a blind person could be shaking their face at someone. Yeah. But not be able to see. Mm. So it's still an intimate yes. connection. And so I'm, I was just thinking in a literal way, maybe that's the reason. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think all that is is very valid and correct because it, the words start to fail at this point. What does it really mean to see? Is there something, the light that we're seeing right now is God, and we always say, God is hiding, you know, kind of stretching out the light as, as like a shirt and hiding behind it. So God is the, the one really hiding. And you can't limit God to what that which light bounces off of, right? Obviously. So there's something though that is, it's like a finger pointing at the moon. You know, it's like, it's everything becomes metaphorical. And to those who are able to take it that way through their experiences, they're able to say, oh, now I know why you, you said the word, even though it's not exactly that, but like Hanambam, I'm sure would say in the beginning of the more with all his definitions, the reason the Torah uses these words about this is because it's, it's kind of like the same idea that it's, 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 almost like that and it gives you a semblance it's it's like if you want to try and explain what is chocolate to somebody they never had chocolate before i say yeah that hazelnut well it's not quite that you add some i don't know what to taste or maybe it tastes a little bit like chocolate you, you, you kind of they you push them in the right direction that's the way i see it a great point um so what is throwing mysticism it flourished specifically during talmudic times believe it or not it's that ancient it influenced many later forms of, of Jewish mysticism, and it's the most ancient, according to uh, um, uh, Gershom Shalom, it's the first trend in Jewish mysticism. It's the most ancient one, and it had the biggest role to play in influencing the rest of Kabbalah. And Sefirot have no role in this tradition. Right? Remember, we, we had that class on the Sefirot and how they interact. This has nothing to do with Sefirot because it precedes even the concept of Sefirot, um, and the, the point here, as we've said, is that our goal in throne mysticism is to ascend upward to the throne room of God. And also, not only that, others, some other goals as well. And we'll see what those goals were. Um, and they, they, they might include the acquisition of some kind of esoteric knowledge that's only available in this supernal realm, uh, some hidden meanings of the Torah, Becoming privy to God's decrees, learning the prayers of angels. We know from uh, famously Moshe Rabbeinu, Baruch Shem Kevod Machutol the Midrash says he got that from the angels. That's why we could only say it out loud on Yom Kippur, because on Yom Kippur we're like angels. Every other day we have to say it belahash, under our breath. Um, but the point is to incorporate the prayers that we learned from the angels into our prayers. And, you know, a lot of people who have documented their psychedelic experiences, have said, you know, that amazingly, the person who invented DNA PCR, PCR has allowed us to, to multiply and multiply amounts of DNA. So we know, you know, COVID PCR, what is that? You take a little bit of DNA and you let it multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply and you get a whole bunch of DNA. You know how the guy invented that? He took LSD, he pictured himself walking along a DNA molecule and figured out through that LSD experience, if I unzip it and then add the nucleotides and then let the enzymes do their work, then we'll have this unbelievable thing, Baruch Haba, we'll have this unbelievable thing where the DNA will continue to multiply and multiply. So he did this through a mystical experience. 
Steve Jobs famously said that a lot of his inspiration for Apple was inspired by his LSD experiences. So we, I, I think we ought not to scoff. <laughs> Dr. Nasser already said we're going to be scheduled a trip in, in June. We scheduled a, a class trip in June. <laughs> exactly. Oh, you also did? Oh, in May. Yes, yeah, sorry, May. Exactly. Um, so say it again. To the mountains. I'm down. You let me know where and when I'll be there. Uh, but but the, the, the point here is we, we, you, people might scoff. They say, what do you mean learning the prayers of angels? Well, if you ascended to that realm and you felt that there were entities speaking with you, famously on DMT, people talk about entities and all that stuff. Well, it might be this unbelievable religious experience. You might have been so enamored with it that you were overcome with joy and you, the angels were singing praises to God. And in that mystical experience, you experienced that. And then when you came back, you remembered, you said, let me write these down and let's all pray together. It could be. Right. And uh, even even magical techniques, who knows what this means at this point? I have no idea, you know, but, uh, the, you know, the Easterners would call this Siddhi. The, that's the Indian term for it. Magical techniques that people could develop and, you know, take this, of course, with a grain of salt. We don't want anybody, uh, you know, paying money to anybody to make magic for them because it could be exploited. But I will say when you get to the mystical realm, reality starts to kind of crumble a little bit. And, uh, you know. People might smack me for saying that because science is not that way. Science wants to talk about an objective reality. But philosophically, at the end of the day, you can't even prove that there's a person there with another experience. The best you can do is talk about your firsthand experience. But I, I would recommend that you rely on other people's claims about their firsthand experience. Otherwise, your experience of life is probably not going to be very pleasant. But that doesn't mean that we should, we should scoff at all this stuff. I think we could be open-minded. Um, but to the mystic at this time, a successful throne mystical experience meant that they would be going from just a disciple of the mystics to becoming a mystical master of Maase Merkava. Now, who knows what Maase Merkava is? Maase Merkava is the first chapter of Sefer Yehezkel. And it's amazing. Actually, I, I, I read it when I was in my year in Israel. And I noticed from Sefer Ezra Perek Tet. I have it written in my Tanakh, random, unbelievable, you know, a few of them, like maybe four or five, you know, almost identical quotes from Ma'asemet Kava. And I, there was one rabbi in, in, in Ma'ale Adumim who had an eidetic memory, and I was walking with him from Shul, and I, 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 I ran up to him, and I said, I noticed connections from Ezra, and he starts quoting it word for word. He's like, yeah, you're right, this one and this one and this one. And this one. And he was like amazed, because he never put those together, but he knew them both by heart. And I have to, you know, if we ever uh, get the chance to, to look into what that could mean. But to me, it's so funny. Like you look at the looks on everyone's faces now. Everyone looks so enamored and amazed. Once you say the word mysterious, people are hooked. You know, it's an amazing thing. You know, like you tell people, okay, this is what it is. Nobody's interested anymore. But once you hide a little thing behind a veil, it, people cannot get enough of it. It's, it's the most unbelievable thing. That's just the way we are as humans. We're always looking for it. What's the secret? You know, you say if we're uh, all sitting at a Shabbat table and everyone's loud and whatever, you start whispering to the person next to you, everyone quiets down to hear what you're saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a very, it's a, I always try that with my grandpa. It's a funny thing, but it's true. <laughs> it's a very true thing. He pointed it out to me. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great thing. Uh, so after Hurban Habayit, of course, the, yeah. I don't think so. Right, probably. Yeah, you know, Isaiah is, is, is much later. Yeah, yeah. Is it, is, is much later. Wait, is he much later? He's uh, hold on. 
Uh huh. Yes. Okay. Let's go during. Yeah, at least at least hundred years makes sense. So yeah, man. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? But I mean, who knows what texts were available? So it's Sadiq Iyun to say the least. Um, and I'll try to find in my Tanakh. Maybe I'll uh, I'll send some pictures out. Um, but bottom line, after Hurman Habayit, we lost that house where we could experience God. And we've always spoken about, you know, Hakam Sasun talking about the Mishkan possibly as a guide to meditation and entering each of the rooms really being equivalent to entering different realms of meditation. Um, but after Harman Abayit, now God's presence could really only be found in his heavenly abode. So through meditation, you could get to God's heavenly uh, version of the Beit HaMikdash. So now, really, what the, this, the commonality here is that these are people who are seeking more. They're seeking more out of their experiences from uh, uh, Judaism, from life, from mysticism. Uh, so they're really daring people. And they, it, it, normal mysticism wasn't going to cut it for, these, for, for a lot of these uh, Talmudic rabbis who were into this stuff, because that's just regular, you know, run-of-the-mill halacha, which is, works for most, a lot of people, I would say now. Uh, but these people didn't want just a normal experience. They wanted a paranormal experience. They wanted something that would wow them, you know, and uh, Terrence McKenna. But, but yeah. Michael, isn't, isn't mysticism, in other words, it, to me, it's not normal. So how could it be? <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're heebie-jeebie, that's, you're, you're on another level. So, yeah, so, so I would say, so yeah, normal, not necessarily normal, but I would say, Normal mysticism, we're defining as when you're praying the Amidah, you feel amazing. You feel euphoric and you feel like God is right there with you. Just from praying the Amidah. Paranormal mysticism is doing a whole bunch of, like we're going to show you different kinds of chants that they would do and different techniques that weren't, you know, run of the mill and, and straight as an arrow halakha, but they went above and beyond that and got more heebie-jeebie. If that makes sense. So, so let's see. Let we'll, we'll get to. It. Let's see. Let's see what else there is in store for for these people. Um, they wanted this paranormal experience, like we said, and of course, there's restricted access. You know, not anybody could go into this. It was something that you have to be really hashuv. So, uh, even the pardes story that we quoted in the beginning of all these uh, these these Kabbalah classes, what's the pardes story warning us about? There were these four Amoraim who went in. Only one of them, only to be Akiva. But the other three became either dead, crazy, or kofir. And, uh, you know, it's warning us, say, be careful when you're seeking out these types of experiences. Um, and that's why there's restricted access. It makes sense. Um, so there was training that needed to happen for the throne mystic. And I want to compare the training to the, for the throne mystic to flight training for an astronaut, right? Because an astronaut, before he goes into space, I'm sure he needs to be very well prepared for the experience he's going to have way up there. Um, so what's included meeting certain criteria. for? So you had to be at least 40 years old, according to some traditions. He had to be what's known as hacham and mevin medato. Not only did he need to be wise, he needed to be so wise that you could only give him Rashe Perakim. You only give him the, the kind of the headings or the title headings of the real content and not the real content. And he has to be Mevin Me'elav. 
is to figure it out on, on his own. It can't be spelled out to him. Because otherwise he's not worthy. If he's really worthy, he should be able to figure it out on his own. And not only that, I think it can't work if it's spelled out to him. It's only going to ruin it. If you crystallize it into words and he's not really capable of understanding on his own, then it's, then it's not going to have any effect. And even worse, it's just going to like give him preconceived notions about what to expect. So the most you can do is point them in the right direction. Like we always say, the finger pointing at the moon, you shouldn't stare at the finger only. Follow where the finger is pointing to and then look at the moon. Unfortunately, some people will, as Alan Watts says, they'll look at the finger and then they'll suck on the finger because they just need something to cling to. And, and, and that's what a lot of religion, unfortunately, sometimes becomes. And I'm not, I don't want to put anybody in particular down, but, but I think the point is that it's supposed to guide us towards more. Um, so before the, the experience, he was going to be briefed by his master as to what the journey would probably be like in certain ways the perils that he might encounter and how to deal with them, right? So if you remember in the, in the Gemara that we quoted way back when about the Pardes, we saw that Rabbi Akiva told the other Rabbanim, they told the other the Hachamim, if you see the Sapir, the marble, don't say Maim Maim. Don't say water, water when you see the sapphire marble. What the heck does that mean? Well, I think it means not everything is what you think it is. It's more than meets the eye. So if you try to say, aha, I got it, it's water. No, 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 it's not water. Don't pin down a concept. And that's something that's kind of runs through all of mysticism. Is stop trying to pin it down. Um, uh, sometimes these people would be provided with certain accoutrements to protect them from the possibly hostile and unfamiliar atmosphere um, and you don't have to say necessarily protect them like in an Avodah way, but something just to really remind them of and to ground them. So we know uh, one of Michael Pollan quotes uh, one of these Jewish people who, who I think did mushrooms or whatever. And uh, he took a Torah along with him. And he said that he had the Torah on his lap the whole time while he was doing mushrooms. And this was like an important Torah. And he said that he felt that the whole time he was sitting in God's lap and that God was kind of holding him and caressing him this whole time. That was his experience. And the Torah helped him kind of feel grounded into that experience. What a beautiful thing, right? Um, it's funny. If I would have said something like that, like five years ago, I would have, I would have like, I, I don't know. I would never, that's a good point. I would never would have said something like that five years ago, but I think it's beautiful. Um, so there was long and arduous training going on there, right? There was really important things that this guy had to encounter soon. They would fast for days at a time. Um, and then came liftoff. They would lift off into their experience. They would, you know, uh, you probably using some kinds of names of God, which who knows if they had deeper meanings, but maybe not meanings to think about, meanings to mystically experience. Um, and then there was the trip itself. And then finally, after the trip, there would be the debriefing session, just like an astronaut, you know, you get back. He would recount the features of the journey, what went right, what happened, what went wrong, what were the dangers that he encountered. And amazingly, the mystic was even given a map, right? A map of sorts by his mentor, right? And it would indicate what he's meant to expect. Uh, and, you know, you might say, well, doesn't that give him a preconceived bias regarding what to expect? Well, the point is that, you know, you look at what the hippies did in the 1970s and the, sorry, the 60s, they were not part of a system. They didn't have 
anything that they were going on, everything was rebelling against tradition. And that in a way ruined everything about uh, what these, the potential was for these psychedelics. But and what, one thing Michael Pollan recommends in his book is that when these things maybe are becoming legalized or whatever, they need to be done in a systematic way. And they need, we could rely on tradition and religion. You look in the Native American peyote ceremonies, very strict rules, but they work and they help cure a lot of Native Americans from their alcoholism. And they're very profound things for these Native Americans, but they have traditions and they have a religion around the peyote ceremony. So I think it's very beneficial that the, that the Jewish mystic has a map of sorts by his mentor. Even though it might color some of his experiences, it really will help him to navigate these waters in a way. Um, and this is, you know, playing off of really there's just a conservative tenor to all of Jewish mysticism in the first place. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's, it's very beneficial to any mystic, I think, to have a tradition and have a system. And this goes back to the really early classes that we did on rationalism versus mysticism last semester, where we talked about, you know, Jonathan Haidt and the different moral intuitions. And that if you kind of shoo away tradition too easily, you shirk it off your back, you're not going to end up in a balanced place. You're going to end up in a place with too much chaos and you end up where Emile Durkheim calls it anomie, without meaning. And you're going to suffer as a society as, and as an individual, I think. Um, the map may have included seven heavens and the divine palace above these seven heavens. And of course, we know seven is the number of completeness. So take it with a, a grain of salt. And there were these seven chambers that were each guided by increasingly more powerful and intimidating angels, right? And the, 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 the task of these angels was to prevent intruders from entering. So the, the whole point here is there's, there's something that's hidden and there's the seeker and there's something that's hidden. There's a seeker and it's always shrouded in mystery. And it's always only to those who are capable of ascending there and speaking with these angels. So the last chamber of course, is the throne room of God, God sitting on his throne, borne by the chariot spoken about by Yehazkel, of course, and surrounded by a pargod, by a veil and ministered to by different angels. And amazingly, this is really funny. They talk about the dimensions of the upward journey. They were described as so enormous. They were almost inconceivable distances. How do you get to uh, this realm? It was the ancient equivalent of light years, really. So they say this, and of course, this is to try to discourage the mystic from attempting the very dangerous journey. So they say earth to the firmament to the rakia is 500 years. And then each of the seven firmaments from one to the other is another 500 years. So that's 500 and then all those 500s. And then the Hayota Kodesh, who are above there, each of their feet is 7,500 years. And then their ankles, and it, you know, they just keeps going on and on and on. And it's like, all right, if you think you're just going to get there walking, you got another thing coming. You know, it's impossible. Um, so the throne of glory is equivalent to the sum total. And this is really interesting of everything below it in size, right? So the, let's say the throne of glory is, is, is what it is. Everything leading up to it with all the Hayot HaKadosh and all the firmaments and all the earth and everything, it's equal in length and size and all that to them. Why do I think that's so interesting? We know the, the famous saying, Hu mekomo shel olam ve'en ha'olam mekomo. Or we, we call God hammakom. Why? I think because 
once you get to this mystical level, we always talk about space and time and energy. These concepts really start to fall away. And that's why panentheism starts to ring more true. God is in everything. Everything is in God. Space kind of collapses in on itself and reveals to you that really God is in this and everything is in and in God. And, and that's what I think it's trying to say when it says that the throne of God is equivalent to the, the length of everything that you think is not God. So the length of God is equal to the length of all of not God. Why would you want to say that? Because they're one and the same. We talk about everything and nothing is the same. Again, the paradoxes keep creeping up. But I think it's trying to nudge you in a certain way of unlearning and unthinking that is necessary to, to achieve these, these levels. Um, <laughs> there's a famous book called Shi'ur Koma. Shi'ur Koma is a book produced by the throne mystics, and it de describes the dimensions of God's body. Now, forgive me, because, you know, of course, the Maimonidean in us is very angry with this, and of course, take it with a grain of salt. Don't take it literally. You know, I don't think any of this stuff is literal, especially when you're talking about the mystical realm. He says, okay, God's, uh, how, how big is God, his body? Two billion, 360 million cubits, where each cubit equals three spans, and each span is equal to the size of the entire universe. Right? So what the heck does that mean? <laughs> so if you thought it was literal... Yes, yeah, say it again. Oh, a little bit, a little bit, just a little bit. Right. So if you thought that was crazy, what, what could this possibly mean? I think the point is that space time, as we said, takes on a completely new meaning when you're getting to the mystical realm that, you know, uh, the, the whole panentheistic thing. It's the same idea that if you're saying that the qubits really encompass the entire universe, three of them, it's clearly not talking about qubits that we know. And it's trying to say, let go of your perception of here and there and separateness. And then you'll start coming closer to the mystical experience. Uh, so to me, it's, this is, it's really fun to, to talk about this stuff because it, it kind of points the way to all that we, that we don't know and, and, and opens us to, to that kind of an experience. Uh, are, we, are we ready for Arbit or? Uh... Oh, no, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. I guess I'll, whatever. I'll continue until, uh, until the... Uh... The Ayrev Rav comes in. Um, all right, so so what what did flight preparation? We're comparing uh, the mystical experience to, to flight training of the of the astronaut. No, I, I don't want you to stop now. I want to know how we're going to take off. <laughs> you got to wait till next week for that idea, <laughs> or tonight. <laughs> don't tell anybody. But yeah, <laughs> but uh, but the flight preparation. What the heck is that? How do you prepare for 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 a trip like this? The mystic was learning how to propel himself upward and how to negotiate his way through the seven chambers, right? right? So he was given magical names to propel upwards. And of course, we know that Rashi claimed during the story of the Pardes, he claimed that the rabbis who entered the Pardes were able to ascend in the first place with the help of, the, of a divine name. All right, so why, why say that? I think there's something to this under, deeper understanding of a divine name that has in it almost like the, the instructions, if you're privy to it, to what to do here. And I, you know, I wish I was on a higher level to actually teach you guys 
what these were and, and, and even just selfishly for myself to know if I could use some sort of God's name. But, but that's the point is it's not what you think it is. It's, it's, it's kind of not an egoistic desire. It's, it's something that is just a love thing. Um, so Mike, what, yes, what's, the, what's, the, what's the community's take or the rabbi's take on amulets? Ah, great question. So the Mishnah amulets are like uh, things that you keep on your person that have right. you know pieces of paper in them. So the Mishnah itself, no, it's something that has paper in it. So like a, just like a, you can we can look up pictures. Yeah. So so people well, like when they're written years ago that we you know Kabbalists wrote them and people wore them in the community. Yeah. I mean, what's the take on that? So when I was very Maimonidean, I wanted to claim that they were Avodah Zarah, but my rabbi told me that they're in the Mishnah, that the Mishnah itself talks about, I think for maybe, uh, maybe Hashavat I forgot which mitzvah, it talks about amulets, but therefore you cannot claim that they're Avodah Zarah because they are, you know, um, given validity by the Mishnah. Oh, so they're good. Yeah. Wow. What does the Alapa Kodak say? No, no, the recent... Uh... Oh, yes, of course, exactly. It's treated that way, for sure. Absolutely, exactly. As long, I think as long as you don't worship it physically as God, I think you're okay. <laughs> so I hope I would hope nobody does that. Um, all right, so there were these. This is really interesting now. Why is this so interesting that who is guarding these different rooms were these different angels? And what do we know about who is guarding the way to Gan Eden, to Etzahayim? The kerubim, these angelic figures. So to me, it's not a it's not a coincidence. It's it makes a lot of sense that this is what's going on, and and you know it's trying to say this is the same realm and the same level we're trying to return to. So there's amulets and there's passwords and there's names of all these angels. So I think we'll pause here um, because I think uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll save the rest for next week. Fantastic guys, really what a pleasure. Thank you all for, for participating, being so engaged. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen. Amen. We're not taking off till next week.